so sometimes uh, on Sunday mornings you get uh, a sermon before the actual sermon. It's kind of like BOGO at the grocery store. Um, so today is, is one of those days. And um, not the first one's not very long. The second one's very, very lengthy. Um, but um, I saw something this week uh, called the Chart of the Week. And a member of our church sent it to me. I don't know who this guy is. He's an avowed atheist. But his thing is he does a chart of the week. And it gives you some data points on what's happening in the world. Well, this week he did uh, religion in America and um, Christian religion in America. And he showed uh, this rapidly declining engagement, participation, worship attendance, that in 1937, 75% of Americans were engaged in a faith community. And it stayed pretty much at that same level until the year 2000. And then in 2000, it began to drop precipitously to where it is today, the lowest point since 1937 at 48%, less than half of our population are now engaged in a faith community of any kind. And oh, by the way, that trend was happening before COVID ever became part of life. All COVID did was accelerate that trend. And so now people who do work in church circles, who study churches and attendance and participation have said that they, are, they expect most churches in America to lose 20 to 25% of her members through this whole process of COVID. And I definitely see that happening in our church. That's going to be the reality at First Presbyterian Church. So this avowed atheist presents this information, and then he says, this is an American tragedy. Somebody with no, no dog in the fight says, if, if we lose Christian community in America, we've lost three incredibly important things that will negatively impact our culture forever. He said, one is character. He said, because of my family, I've been involved in faith communities all over the place. And what I see is that in faith communities, by and large, they're good, decent human beings. They're motivated towards character. Second, they are the connective tissue of this country. They are the places where people gather together where they share common values, where they build relationships, where they invest in caring for one another. There is this thing called community that we are rapidly losing as a result of COVID and other things. And then the third thing is service. That the, the church, the Christian community seems to be people who are hardwired to care for other people who are in need. And he said, if those things continue to disappear, and if the church declines, as she has been now for years, then this country will have lost her center. And I'm not sure what the future holds. All this spoken by an atheist. And so I circled August 15th on my calendar months ago, because this was the day when I thought we would regather as God's people, that COVID would be sort of in the rearview mirror, that we would have renovated the sanctuary, we'd all be back together, school has started, so that we could again affirm to each other, and I say it to you regardless of whether all those things came to be true or not. But those of you who are here right now, I sent out some communication 
over the last two weeks, and I said, please be here on August 15th. Don't risk anything. And for those of you who are virtual because you can't be here yet, I totally understand. But those of you who are here this morning, you are the core of the church. And those people who study churches have said every church in America is in a rebuilding posture because the church doesn't know who she is. I don't know who First Presbyterian Church is because the only way I can gauge that is by people who attend, people who show up and I can see your face. And I know that we have so many people worshiping with us virtually, but all we know are numbers. We don't know who you are. But as we move forward, I circled this Sunday and I said, please, if you're able, come back because you're the core who's invested and engaged in what we're doing and you believe in the future of the church. And so I need you to help me as we engage in the rebuilding of this church so we can continue to fulfill the mission for which God called us to exist on this city block all the way since 1876. And if you love the church and if you believe in the mission of the church, then I need you in the weeks and months ahead to engage more in ways than you ever have in the last several years because we've all been sucked into the vortex of what's happening culturally. That so many other things matter more than the worship of God's people and the community that we experience. And I ask you what the atheists reminded us of. If we fail in this, it is tragic for we have failed to be the people that God is calling us to be. So put that on your hearts. Pray about that. Re-engage. Be present. Serve. Give. Participate. So that we can rebuild the church that God has placed here and the church that God is calling us to be in the future. Let's pray as we now enter into God's holy word. Lord, what a blessing what a gift it is to be your people, to be called into your family that is not institution, that is not organization, but is divinely created bride. That we are the bride of you, our God. You are our faithful groom. And you've called us to be your instrument in this confused, broken, darkened, chaotic world where evil exists and where disasters are happening and where conflicts rage. The church is needed, oh God, now more than ever. And I pray that we would renew our commitment to her so that you can continue to use us in this particular place for the purposes for which you called us. And Father, not the least of which is the reading and the proclamation of your word that we would continue to be shaped and formed in and through the power of your Holy Spirit. So come now, speak into our hearts, open us to understand things about the eighth commandment that perhaps we have never considered. And Lord, overcome my sin today that you and you alone would be honored and glorified for we ask it and pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.
And now for uh, just an ever brief period, would you stand out of respect and reverence for the word of God as we find it in Exodus chapter 20. It is verse 15. It is the eighth commandment in which God says, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. This is God's word for you, for his church, for the people of God. And may we understand the basis by which God makes this command as he seeks to protect what he has given as a sign of his provision and care for us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So many years ago, when I was in college, like some of you here even now, uh, I used to try to make extra money by house-sitting for people. So uh, my mom was a school teacher, my dad was an attorney, so they had friends who would travel, and they'd say, hey, can David house-sit for us? And so I'd go over there. So this school teacher friend of my mom's says, can you house-sit this weekend? So I said, great. So I go over there Friday afternoon, they're gone, and I'm kind of getting the lay of the land, where am I going to be living this weekend? And I'm kind of walking around the house, and on the coffee table, there is a, a magazine called Law Enforcement Today. Okay. So I thought that was interesting, and there were a couple others, but that, that was on the top. So I'm, I'm going in, and of course, next I go to the kitchen. And I get in the kitchen, and there's one of those cork boards, and things are thumb-packed up there. And, and there's like a, I don't know, I, w- I wouldn't call it a periodical, but there was some publication that was thumbtacked there. And I can't remember the title of it, but FBI was in the title. <laughs> and so I'm like, I need more intel here. So I call my mom, and I go, Mom, who are these people? And she goes, well, so 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 is this teacher that I work with, but her husband is a special agent for the FBI. And I'm like, you know, I would have liked to have known that before I accepted this gig, right? And so in my head, I have this image of all the crazed criminals that this guy has put away over his career, and they're all going to come back tonight and seek their vengeance, right? So this is, you know, there's no ADT at this house. There's no alarm system. So we created the David Swanson alarm system. So I got heavy books and leaned them against all the doors. I got cans out of the pantry, put them in all the windows. And if anybody was coming in this house, there was going to be noise, and I was going to know about it. And so 10 o'clock, I kind of go, and I feel like I'm ready for whatever may come. And then I go into the master bedroom, which I hadn't been in yet, and I go in to get ready for bed, and I sit down on the edge of the bed, and on the nightstand is a 357 Magnum handgun that's loaded. And I'm like, holy cow, if this guy felt the need to sleep with that next to him, they really are coming tonight. <laughs> right? So now I'm, I am, my heart's beating out of my chest. My eyes are, well, I'm not sleeping, you know, but I'm in bed. I'm like, who is coming, you know, and I'm just waiting. And then, of course, you know what happened. A book goes over. Bonk. And I am like, holy cow. So immediately, what do I do? Stupidly dumb, your brain is not functioning. I pick up the 357 Magnum and start doing my OPD imitation throughout the house, coming around corners, clearing rooms, right? Looking in all the closets. You know, praise Jesus, there was nobody in there, right? Because I'm, I'm sure I would have done something foolish. I didn't shoot the dog or anything like that. And so everything turned out fine. My heart eventually calmed back down. But, but why did I feel that way? Why did I get all hyper? Well, guess what? Maybe that's an extreme, but you have all had the same feeling. How many of you have not been laying there with your spouse and you go, did you hear that? What was that? 
You know, things make noise in the night and it scares you. And that fear comes because you believe, you're afraid that there is a threat. Someone's coming to take your safety, to take your security, maybe to take something that you possess or own, maybe to take your life or to take the life of someone you love. And it, it creates these incredibly strong feelings of fear and insecurity. And those feelings are exactly behind the reason for which God gave us the eighth commandment. He's trying to protect us from ever having to go through that. And what we have found in this most recent period of weeks as we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments over and over again, what we find is that God tells us that he holds certain things to be sacred. So worship, what we do in this room, this is sacred to the Lord. Today, the Sabbath is sacred to God. His name is sacred. Life is sacred. The family is sacred. Marriage is sacred. And today he says that which we possess, that he has provided, is to be held sacred. It's to be protected. It's to be honored. Why? Because he is the giver of all good gifts. And there is a right of possession in our lives if in fact he has said they are sacred. But it's all grounded whether or not we believe that's true, it's all grounded in James 1.17, which says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. So everything rests on how you view everything that you have, from your ability to draw breath and live to everything that you have in your life. And this goes back to the Old Testament, when God said to the Israelites, what? As a sign of my provision for you, as a sign of my love for you, you may go up into the land and possess it, right? So they, they possessed the promised land as a sign of God's provision, his ability to take care of them. And so in exactly the same way, God allows us to possess things in life. And those things, whether they're tangible or intangible, are intended to be used by God to affirm to us his provision his care for us, his love for us. But see where we get twisted up in this is when we fail to understand it that way. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe that everything you have actually belongs to the Lord and you merely possess it as a steward? Because when you know that, then, then you hold everything really loosely. It's not yours to begin with, but you pay attention because you want to be a good steward of it. You want to do with it what God is calling you to do. But if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that God is the provider of everything you have, if you believe that you're the one who provides it and you're the one who brought it into yourself, well, guess what? You're going to always be worried about it. You're going to be stressing about protecting it. You're always going to be afraid that someone's going to try to take it away. And, oh, by the way, you're going to believe that God has not been sufficient in his provision for you. So the seeds for trying to take what don't, belong to you are going to be planted as you look around and what do you do? You compare your life to everybody else. And instead of learning the secret that Paul told us about, he says, I've learned the secret of being content in plenty and in want. If we don't truly believe that God is the provider of all good gifts, 
the provider and the giver of everything that we have, then you and I are constantly be going to do what? We're going to try to get the needs that we have as human being met. When your cup has been filled in Jesus Christ, then, then you are freed from having to manipulate others to get what you need. But when you don't believe that, when you, when you don't believe that God is sufficient for you, then as a human being, what are you going to do? You have to manipulate the circumstances and the people around you in order to get what you need. And so you're constantly going to be able, you're constantly be going to be thinking about how can I get this? How can I get as much as this other person that I see? How can I have that reputation? How can I get that talent? How can I seem to get the adulation and the love that other people have for that person? How come they don't love me that way? How do I get that? And that's, that's born out of the seeds of discontent. That's born out of the seeds of not understanding and knowing the fullness of the presence of Christ in us. Remember how Jesus died. He died between two thieves. He died between two men who had stolen, taken what didn't belong to them. And one of them says to Jesus, he says, hey, Jesus, get me down from here. If you're really Jesus, save yourself and save us. In other words, change my circumstances, right? Get, get me out of the trouble that I'm in. If you're really God, we'll prove it and do for me what I want. Because right now, clearly, you're not doing that because I'm hanging up here on a cross. But what does the other thief say? He doesn't say anything about his circumstances. In other words, he says to Jesus, I'll take my circumstances. Because if you remember the conversation, he says to the other thief, we're getting what we deserve. He says, I'll take my circumstances if I can have you. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that duality and which side of that we falls on will determine everything about our ability to be obedient to the eighth commandment. Are we the first thief who believes that God hasn't done enough? He hasn't provided for us. So come on, come fix my circumstances. Do for me what I want. Or have we come to a place where we understand the love of God in Christ so that no matter what our circumstances are, as long as we have Jesus, then we have enough. And what we have or what we don't have, we hold so loosely and we offer to God in the manner of his choosing. Now, my bet is that, that most of you at this point are going, yeah, Swanson, I think you nailed that, right? I mean, I got no objections, like stealing's wrong, right? And, and, and in the Old Testament, the reason the penalties for stealing were so bad is as we have come to understand this morning, when you steal something that doesn't belong to you, it's not that you're violating the other person, it's you're violating the work of God in that person's life. God is trying to provide something to them that demonstrates to that person his provision and love for them, and you got in the middle of it and mucked it up. So theft and stealing is not primarily an offense against another person. It's an offense against God. So yeah, the Old Testament takes that very seriously, and the punishment is really harsh. And so we say today, well, absolutely, right? Stealing's bad. It's wrong. Let's join hands and close in prayer. 
is there really anything else, right? Because what we think is, well, you thieves, they're out there. I, I know who thieves are, right? And I'm, you know, I, I've told you before, I, you know, growing up, I decided that I wasn't very talented or smart or uh, particularly attractive. And so I was gonna make my way in the world by being virtuous, right? So I, I, I racked my brain the last two weeks in preparation for this. Uh, honestly, I don't think I've ever taken anything physically that didn't belong to me. Like not so much as a piece of bubble gum in a 7-Eleven that I shove in my pocket because I was absolutely terrified of what would happen to me if I did that. And so I, you know, we, we read the eighth commandment and we all go, check, I've, I've never stolen anything because we, we know who thieves are, right? Thieves have long hair, they wear dark glasses, carry flashlights, wear trench coats and drive vans with the windows blacked out, right? They operate under cover of darkness and they're shady looking characters that we could probably pick out. And then we read our morning newspaper and it just confirms what we all believe, I counted yesterday, just in one section of the paper, 11 different incidences of theft. And we all go, oh my gosh, there's so much theft and stealing in the world. I'm so glad I'm not like them. Really? Well, let's dig a little bit deeper. Because maybe the thief is not just out there, but maybe the thief is in here. I remind you of what Paul said in Galatians 5, 16. He says, so I say, live by the Spirit, for you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you don't do what you want to do. So that's what I referred to earlier. If you have been filled, if your cup has been filled by the presence of Christ in you, then you're gonna live according to spirit and you're gonna desire what God wants. But when that's not there, or you haven't been feeding that or cultivating that relationship, then you start to be tempted by the desires, the fleshly side of you. And we read last week in James about how your evil desires entice you and then they drag you away. It's such great descriptive language. So when we live not according to the spirit, but the flesh, those desires, they are uh, growing in us such that we compare ourselves to other people. And that gives birth to sin. That means we start taking from others things that do not belong to us. And again, we, we become the thieves. And, and in case you don't believe that, let me just give you some data points for this, okay? So... Last year, federal government said that there was $30 billion in taxes that were uncollected from people because they underreported their income. U.S. News and World Report said in a recent survey, 25% of Americans cheat on their income taxes. So those two things seem to support each other. Time Magazine reported last year that workers steal $40 billion a year from their employers by lying about their hours, fudging expense reports, or taking home office supplies. And that, oh, by the way, is 10 times the cost of street crime in America every year. Moody Magazine reported that companies lose more than $20 billion a year when employees take dishonest sick days. And in 2015, retailers lost $30 billion to theft by their own employees, raising the cost of retail goods for the rest of us. And in the wonderful book called The Day America Told the Truth, we learned that, 20, that American employees say they spend about 20% of their day goofing off looking at different things on the internet, which means they work four days a week, but get paid for five. 
And we suddenly had become like the little boy who goes into the 7-Eleven and takes out a piece of bubble gum, shoves it in his pocket, and does so without guilt in his conscience because in his mind he says, 7-Eleven will never miss it. They've got plenty. And in the back of our heads, culturally, when it comes to theft, when it comes to stealing, we have this misguided cultural idea called the Robin Hood principle, that if we're taking from someone who already has a lot, and I don't think I have enough, then taking from that person is okay. So if I work for a big corporation and I fudge a few things or take a few things here and there, they'll never miss it. I need it. They already have a lot. So sure, I'm going to goof off. I'm going to fudge on this. I'm going to take that. Because we don't think it counts somehow. That's a cultural view of theft. But God comes along and he says, no, because you don't understand the way in which I'm trying to use all things to demonstrate my provision, my care, my security, my love for all people. So we have to take those things Seriously, don't underestimate how you do that in your own life. But then we have to go a little bit deeper, don't we? Because it's not just tangible things. It's not just physical things. It's intangible things. It's things where we look at others and we envy their talents, their reputation, the love that they receive. And because we feel like God has not given to that, us to that, uh, those things sufficiently, then we try to take them for ourselves. And so we rob people of love and support by using words that demean and degrade, or we withhold our words of support and love altogether. Because in our heads, we say, well, they already have enough. We rob people of their dignity because we do not see in them the imago Dei that all people possess. And we consider ourselves superior and they inferior. We rob them of their human worth. We rob them of their minds when we steal their ideas and we use them and claim them as our own, we rob them of their moral purity when we take things from them physically that they can never ever get back. We are thieves in so many deeper ways in which we are taking from others, but then it goes even a level deeper than that. What is it that happens to us in our relationship with God? Are we thieves? When it comes to our relationship with him, Jeremiah 9, 24 says, if anyone is to boast, let him boast in this, that he knows and loves me. In our culture today, you know, we steal from God more than anything else. We steal his glory. We don't consider the fact that it's God who's given us our gifts, God who's given us our attractiveness, God who's given us our intellect, God who's given us everything that we need to be the people that we are. But instead, what we do is we create our own brand. My goodness, today in social media, it's all about being an influencer. Look at me, look at my brand, look at what I write, look at my body, look at me physically. All those things, it's about me. And we rob the very nature of the glory of God. And God says to us, get your hands off my glory. Because what we just sang is God worthy. And he alone is worthy of our worship and our honor and our praise. And then see, we, we steal from God our worship because we think ourselves too busy. We steal from God our witness because we think he hasn't given enough to us. We steal from God so many different things because in our head, we think he's failed us 
in some way because we've forgotten the cross. We've forgotten the tomb is empty. And then Malachi reminds us, he says, God says to Judah, he says, will you rob God financially? It's supposed to be a rhetorical question. All the people are supposed to go, no, we'd never do that. And yet God comes back and he says, yeah, you do actually. You're taking money that's mine, doesn't belong to you. And see what was happening is Judah was in a terrible drought. And in chapter one, verse eight, they've gone to God and they've said, is this how you love us? Look at the calamity we're in. Do you not see? We, we can't afford to give anything to you. It's like Peter and John in the boat. When the storm comes up, they're on the sea. Remember this? And they wake Jesus and they go, do you not care that we might drown? We look at God and we say, don't you see our circumstances? How could I possibly give to you when you've let me have this pain, this suffering, this hardship? Well, perhaps we should consider that it's in the pain and the loss when God draws near to us the most closely to begin with. It's in the pain and the loss and the suffering that we realize who God is forming us to be. It's not in the triumph. And friends, it's even in those places where the, the act of our generosity is a demonstration of our faithfulness to God. That I don't understand my circumstances, but one thing I know is true. God's on the throne, his kingdom needs to advance, and I'm gonna be a part of that no matter what. And are there times and seasons when we're going to give less? Absolutely, but I'll tell you this. It scares me to death to put my hands on things that don't belong to me, but they belong to God. I'm not putting my hands on his stuff. To the end that I put up here on a screen, exactly what I make and exactly what I give. And I've got a bunch of people in the finance office. You wanna go talk to them? They'll tell you exactly that that's true. And the reason I do it is because I want you to understand I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not doing myself in spades. Why? Because God says, we're just the stewards of it. And if we want the kingdom to advance, you know, the, the data tells us that nationally only 31% of people that go to church give any money. Luckily in this church, it's, up to, it's way up to 40%, which means 40% of you fund the ministry for the 60% who participate in it and enjoy it and give nothing. And I think that's, a, I'm sorry, that's a moment of personal conviction, I pray. Because I believe, you know, some of you go, well, you know, I, I can't give what I think I should. I'm not worried about that. Take a step in your generosity. Because here's the deal. What's the antidote to the eighth commandment? Don't steal. Instead, what? Give. Matthew 10, 8. Freely you have received. So freely give. Be generous. And see if that doesn't set you free instead of worrying about all your stuff and who might take it and who might uh, take you down a notch and take what you have and you're all stressed about it. It's not yours anyway. You start to hold it loosely and you give it into kingdom causes and purposes. You can't convince me that not every one of us in this church could give $20 a month. And you may go, well, yeah, that's, that's hardly anything. And I, right, that's <laughs> my point. But do you know that if everybody who didn't give just gave $20 a month, how that would absolutely revolutionize this church? Just that one thing. Take, take a step in generosity. Don't be trying to get. God's poured into your life to demonstrate to you his faithfulness. So 
He says, it's mine anyway. Give it to me and just see how you might impact my kingdom. I'll close with this. When I was in high school, I graduated from high school, my parents gave me a gold Seiko watch, probably worth $150. But I'd never had a gold watch. And they engraved on the back of it my high school graduation date. It was like, it was like my favorite possession. It was the best thing I owned. And so I'd go to college and I always wore it, always had it on. I loved that watch. And within a few months of being at SMU, I'm playing a pickup basketball game in the student center. And so I, I take off my watch. I've got a towel and I set them down on the side of the court where, I, where in my mind I said, I, I, I can see them. So I get involved in the game, game's over and I come back, there's the towel and there's no watch. And, and I'm, I am so shocked. Like that's the first time anything was taken from me. And, and I was so shocked that I start running around the gym asking anybody that I could find, did, did you see anyone take the watch that was right there? Did, did, did you see him? Was it you? Did, did you take the watch by accident? Did you think maybe that was yours? Like in my head thinking they're gonna go, oh yeah, I did here. And I was desperately trying to find the thief. And I find in this culture, that's what we're doing. We're looking around and we're going, oh, there's so many people who are taking what doesn't belong to them. They're messing up our culture. There's theft and all, you know, all the cyber security, everything. And we're looking, trying to find out who it is. But my point is, maybe today, you know where it starts? It doesn't start out there, it starts in here. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, it's not just the act. It's what's in your heart. Do we covet? Are we jealous? Do we envy? What are we doing to take from what belongs to God or others? Because primarily, we haven't actually trusted that our sufficiency is to be found in Christ alone. Turn to Jesus and let him be the provision of all your needs. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you demonstrate for us the right of possession, that that's sacred, that the right that we have to possess what you give to us without violation of it, so that by that possession, you can confirm to us your love, your provision, your security. Lord, that's a sacred thing. And thank you that you move by this commandment to protect it. But Father, in ways big and small, we confess that there are moments where we have not trusted, where we have thought your love insufficient. And so we've, we've taken things that don't belong to us because we're trying to fill that hole within us that is actually an abyss until we wholly trust in you. So Father, like the thief on the cross, I pray that we would accept our circumstances because we know the sufficiency of you, our God. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.